0: Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra, and this is an interim lecture before we get into our new subject for authentic biochemistry. So, I'll remind you that science comes from scientia, which means knowledge, and that philosophy, of course, is an old Greek word and it means a love of wisdom. And wisdom the Greeks meant what it takes to live the good life. So I'll also remind you that I have a PhD. Now that means that that term, it means that you basically have two degrees in one. The PH stands for the philosophy portion of it. And the D, the reason the D is capitalized, it means you're a doctor of some discipline. So the doctor of some discipline, well, that would be biochemistry. But the pH means that there's supposed to be some aspect of a person walking around with that degree that allows them to utilize the principles of logic to come up with wise understandings. So that's those two aspects of being a research scientist and say a professor come together even with a uh, basic biochemistry lecture. So today I'm going to go back into my um, archives and resurrect something I talked about several years ago, but that I've revised. <clears throat> and that is a discussion of a term I call tailspin. And hopefully you'll understand why I call it that at the end of uh, this discussion. So this is an interim lecture. Uh, no more IE. No more immunoepigenetics, this is something that we're doing because I thought it might be um, illuminating. So first, I'm going to start off with a quote. I don't really use quotes very often because I like to, I like people when they say something to put it in their own words, but I'm using this co- quote because it's a jumping off point and it was a jumping off point for me to come up with the ideas I'm now going to share with you. It comes from Plotinus, and it's from his Aeneid 5, which, of course, was dictated, from what we understand, to his colleague and student, Porphyry. And this was uh, basically published in the late 3rd century CE. Uh, And remember that Plotinus was a Neoplatonist, and he was living uh, somewhere around Alexandria in what is now modern Egypt. Here's the quote. But we shall say that it is our intellect, being different from the reasoning part and having gone up on high, but all the same, ours, even if we should not count it among the parts of the soul. Yes, really, it is ours and it is not ours. For this reason, we use it and we do not use it. All right, now that may sound a little bit obscure, but I am a student of Plotinus. I've read, been reading Plotinus now for 15 years. So I think that that's pretty clear actually for, uh, for dear old wise Plotinus. So let let me take apart what I thought about after I read that particular excerpt and really the whole Aeneid five. there's a bit, lot of it about this sort of discussion. So I say that intellect, because that's what uh, Tess is talking about, is not a classical division of or faculty, basically, of reason. The latter being occupied by the understanding, the imagination, and a third term loosely called in the literature, thinking. Now, I've decided that thinking is too ambiguous a term, so I've replaced it with the term mentation which points to the event of processing experience with at least categorical logic. And it assumes that mind has a faculty and as a faculty, one of them is mentation along with understanding and imagination. So that's how it's categorical logic where I get there. Now, that would comprise a categorical logical conclusion but i want to argue that all three faculties of reason are purposive agentic phenomena of propositional logic so i propose that the mind must intentionally process experiences that start out as percepts through a sequential reception which translates the wave particle dualistic electromagnetic radiative emanations to the phase of pattern recognition which then identifies the elements of the experiential event via a form of codification. Now, this codification is the faculty of abstractive concept-rich understanding. The imagination is the temporal sequencing necessary to maintain the continuation of perception through the time required, and mentation, that third component, is the per- perpetual becoming, which starts as stimulus, moves through awareness, and results in judgment. That last segment there comes almost straightforward from Stoic philosophy, I'm pretty sure. But it's my reasoning at work here, okay? Now, the key to reason is intention to move from perception to knowledge. Now, knowledge is classically defined as justified true belief. And there is much I've written propositionally about that particular definition. But I'm going to bracket it off for now for reasons of focus towards term intellect. So, because that's how we started off, with Plotinus. So, the ancient philosophical analysis of intellect and it has its roots even in pre-Socratics, most notably Parmenides and Pythagoras, and of course, Plato, all basically considered intellect to be the form of the good in man. Yeah, that's correct, the good in man. So it has obviously an ethical framework. So in Christianity, We describe Jesus Christ as the Logos, which means divine order or providential intellect. Now, the Neoplatonist Plotinus developed this to its highest solubility, where he suggested intellect is a transcendental that connects the noumena to phenomena. By means of apprehending that uncertainty does not mean negation, but rather it means indetermination. So, referring to human knowledge, I'm going to unpack that for you. Referring to human knowledge, just because one doesn't know about a given event does not mean the event can't happen. Now, that's the concept of uncertainty I have, again, already dealt with, and that particular ar- argument is elsewhere where I pointed out that certainty is within the possibility of all events uncertain. Again, a full accounting of my reasoning on that view has been written, and indeed, my views on the subject of a pr- were all talked about in a previous authentic biochemistry lecture or two. And not that long ago, I think maybe even around Christmas time of 2022. But nevertheless, you get the point. So what is intellect? Is it the means by which, now that means by which is another way of saying, is it a transcendental? Is it a means by which we apprehend the highest state of metaphysics, the noumena? Now, this is going to take more defining of terms here, but that's what we're doing. And it's Sunday afternoon, so I think it's a good time to make these contemplations. So my repair, I use that term somewhat, you know, in in a very revered way, but my repair of Kant's thing in itself to the, what I call, ontic event in itself, And so we're going to call that Erignisantologie für Zik." Erignisantologie für Zik. See, that's the German, right? And it's that event which is independent of representation delivered to human perception or Reason that nevertheless has to exist in order for all phenomena to be manifest to our senses. Phenomena, remember, after all, is the optic event for me. So that would be the Er Ignis Ontology for me. Okay, for me. So think about that and then ask this question. Maybe I'm wrong, and maybe is it really the result, the intellect here, the result of interactions among the standard faculties of reason we just went through, okay? And maybe it's some kind of separate form by which we synthesize the intelligible manifold, which is the world, right? Moreover, how does intellect make intelligent the elements of truth and are these made into knowledge by the justification of believed events through hard a priori reasoning or indeed sense-based observation and analysis or both okay so these are a lot of questions that come up so to begin the answer we're going to begin with a phenomenological search for answers to these questions i'm posing here and we're going to offer an appraisal of the meaning of being because that's necessary here one initial approach to the apprehension of being to apprehend something is means to hold it and grab it bring it towards you so The initial approach to apprehending being is to dissect scientific knowledge about nature and obtain it to the hermeneutics of truth-finding and belief-affirming. Because you need both those movements. So an initial premise that can help direct this journey is to assert That, whatever intellect is, it cannot be a subdivision of pure reason or empiricism, as neither method may share mutually a property, a predicate, that owes its existence directly to its derived purpose. Now, why is that? Because that would be, in my estimation, An inverse reductio ad absurdum. Now remember, what is a straight up reductio? Okay, what is a straight up reductio in logic? It takes this form. If not A, then B. But, after observation, not B. So, not A. Or, A must be true. Now, that's a straight up productive autopsy. I say that what this argument here is an inverse. and here's here's my version of the inverse, okay? I hope my logic is correct. <laughs> if a, then b, but not a, so not b. So you're denying the consequent that that at that interval, right? Yes, not the precedent, but the consonant. So, I'm afraid that result this results in a complete failure of both the categorical definition and propositional definition of logic. And so that's right, I'm going there, okay? So, so I think I've cleared that um, hurdle just by using logic. Now, now, I'm going to say rather than that idea, intellect seems to subtend reason and empiricism. Remember that whole other argument was, that's all it is. I'm saying intellect subtends reason and empiricism, but I'm getting back to uh, my uh, the, the whole idea why I started this, right? The whole concept that I got from Plotinus, because intellect is forming a locus, that this position that emerges above the pathway thereby or eo ipso generating both in form and event what both what are the two things reason and empiricism okay so intellect is is generating reason that's what i'm saying here so now now follow me here I, i thought this through it's like imaginary numbers you know in mathematics Imaginary numbers, you can consider in in one way of examining them, is they occur above the axis of a line of numbers that's separated in the middle at zero. So an imaginary number is a number that, when squared, has a negative uh, outcome, negative, negative result. Essentially, an imaginary number is the square root of a negative number. And when you try to solve for that, it doesn't have a tangible value. So that means it's not a, quote, real number. That is, it cannot be quantified on the number line. Imaginary numbers are nevertheless real in the sense that they actually do exist. Okay? it's not that we have to say they exist, they must exist for all other mathematical understandings to function. So at this point I can picture old Zeno, uh, loving these imag- this concept of imaginary numbers because although they exist, you cannot walk from minus one to plus one, and find them on that linear path. You see, because they're not on that path, but they're somewhere in between. Right? Imaginary number, right? Square root again of a negative. Number. So, okay then. Scientific beliefs are based on fundamental event ontologies. Premise that these are mere dialectical movements and not yet knowledge stems from their origin in imagination on the one hand and an increasing implementation of the faculty of understanding on the other and to effectively harmonize those faculties in the the confines of human reason as completed by the third movement, which is mentation, okay? So the problem of empiricism, straight up empiricism, as a plausible foundational method to argue in favor for, say, physicalism, lies in the fallibility of the senses <clears throat> to incorporate imagination with its component ideas along with the rational coupling of concepts coming coming again from uh, understanding to place them within experience. So what do I mean by this? When the mind apprehends both space and time, it does so with innate, that is a priori, faculties that are not innate ideas, no, not like platonic ideas, forms, but rather they are operations, right? Like in math or an operation that inserts structure into the world, structure that is necessary to define and live in the world. Again, back to a logos, right? You want to look at it that way. So, we perceive these provided structures. I'm not going to say that they're discovered, they're simply provided. They're provided by the intellect. We, we perceive these provided structures as physical reality. And we devise a schema to generate concepts that will ultimately populate the understanding. And in so doing, we can interpret individual phenomena by applying those general concepts. That's the basis of experience in what I call as ordinal empirical state. But this description still doesn't account for the faculty of the imagination that at the same time simultaneously provided the freedom to generate the concepts via induction. And the means by which to reinterpret and expand the repertoire of concepts via the generation of what is obviously disinterested ideation, right? The agency of making ideas is ideation, and the imagination is the faculty we we derive for um what reason, what component of reason is functioning here, right? So by way of hallucinating principles. I'll use a biochemical example. All right, let me check my time. So hopefully this is fun for you what we're doing here. Hopefully it's fun for me. Because it helps me clear my mind up of what I of, of what I call fundamentals. Nitrogen, very important element, even in biology. It's found in amino acids, nucleic acids, of course, lipids, and even in carbohydrates. Now, although nitrogen is fundamental to biochemical structures. And therefore, processes such as bioenergetics, signal transduction, growth, development, reproduction, senescence, cellular homeostasis, the elemental form of nitrogen is not available to most chemical processes. In fact, dinitrogen gas, which is in our atmosphere, in fact, it's very abundant, like 72% of the atmosphere that you're breathing right now. That N2 is not available to virtually any chemical process, except one biochemical reaction that is, you know, you can, you can generate a chemical process that can use N2, but you have to really alter the <laughs> volume and pressure and temperature to be able to do something with it. So again, we're talking biology. There is a biochemical reaction that is found in a discrete set of prokaryotic species. And that phenomenon is biological nitrogen fixation. Now in biological nitrogen fixation, you have two moles of ammonia, it's 3 that are produced from one mole of nitrogen gas, and two at the expense of 16 moles of ATP. And a biological supply of electrons and protons hydrogen ions, that is, and it follows this particular reaction sequence. N2 plus eight protons plus eight electrons plus 16 ATP will go to two ammonia gas, that's NH3, plus hydrogen gas plus 16 ADP and 16 PI. Now, that reaction is performed exclusively by prokaryotes using an enzyme called nitrogenase. And that enzyme consists of two proteins, an iron protein and a molybdenum iron protein. The reactions occur while N2 is bound to the nitrogenase enzyme complex. So the Fe protein, the iron protein of that complex, is first reduced by electrons, donated by ferridoxin. Then the reduced iron protein binds ATP effectively and reduces the molybdenum iron protein, which then donates electrons to N2. And that produces NH double bonded to NH. In two further cycles of that process, each requiring electrons donated by more ferredoxin Production, HN double bonded to NH is reduced to H2N single bonded to NH2. And that in turn gets finally reduced to 2 NH3. Okay, so there's ammonification. So depending on the type of microorganism, the reduced ferredoxin, which supplies electrons for the process as you just heard, can be generated by photosynthesis or respiration or even indeed fermentation. So this description was produced via bench-level experiments by scientists, and it involved numerous reagents and cofactors and several analytical instruments to be able to get the precise understanding of that reaction, the nitrogenase reaction. Now, this empirically derived understanding of nitrogen fixation also necessarily required the use of microorganisms and preparations of the nitrogenase enzyme complex in a pure or most likely semi-pure form during the purification process. And from that biochemical level of description, let's move up now to a slightly more general explanation. You see, this is what I'm doing here, okay? Let me check my time. This is not a place to stop and, and um, you know, forget about what we're doing here. It's very important. Let me go, okay, here we can do We've got about three and a half minutes left. Nitrogen has a triple bond, and that requires a great deal of energy to break it. 940 kilojoule compared to the only 493 kilojoule for breaking apart O2. So that means six electrons are going to be required to reduce N2 to 2-NH3. And that reduction process is going to be catalyzed by that enzyme that we call nitrogenase, which is actually composed of two proteins. Remember, I mentioned them. Now I'm going to give you their name, dinitrogenase and dinitrogen reductase, okay? Both of which are going to contain iron, while the second enzyme protein also has molybdenum, So in dinitrogen reductase, the iron and molybdenum are contained in a cofactor, also containing several sulfur atoms, and the reduction of N2 occurs there. The formula for the cofactor is molybdenum, or M-O-F-E-7-S-9, okay? at yet another level of understanding so i'm just running through the levels of understanding here while using the concepts that we're deriving from our intellect and the functioning of the intellect right going through again propositional logic and what experimentation which is a form of empirical experience right so at yet another level of understanding Nitrogen assimilation is described as the reduction of N2 by certain microorganisms, including free-living aerobes like Azotobacter and Azomonas, plus also cyanobacteria, free-living anaerobes like Clostridium and Rhodobacter, etc., and indeed the symbiotic Rhizobium and Bradyrhizobium with legumes. Francia with woody shrubs, and several Anabena species in paddy fields. Now, all those descriptions I just gave you involve the necessary level of empirical observation, experimentation, and, of course, interpretation and analysis in order for me to teach you about this in biochemistry class. But in order for all of that empirical evidence to provide such a series of descriptors, prior intellection had to occur. That involved the use of pure reason based on yet earlier observations and intellections that go all the way back to the pre Socratic philosophers, who use their imagination and its progeny of ideas to explain the cosmos via theories of recurring cycles, categories of nature, fundamental elements. And for all future chemical in- inquiries, atomic theory. So all the co- and that was all the cosmos is made up of small indivisible particles, and as such, there is nothing but atoms in the void. Right. So you know that that all of this has to do with the processes of the intellect via the three faculties of reason. Imagination, understanding, and mentation by people that lived some 2,500 years ago. Because that's where it all started from. That's where. <laughs>